everyone. This is Rachel Feller, co-host of the Pulse podcast. Today we have the treat of having two guests with us, Belinda Tan and Noah Kraft, co-founders and co-CEOs at People Science. Founded in 2019, People Science is a human-centered clinical research platform addressing the need for rigorous clinical science to back alternative medicine and wellness solutions that do not typically fall under traditional Western medicine. The company's platform studies a range of solutions spanning microbiome and food as medicine interventions, natural and synthetic psychedelic medicines, cannabis and cannabinoids, functional medicines, and digital therapeutics. Its user-facing app, called Chloe, supports users to test these alternative treatments on themselves and enables them to view personal results in real time while comparing themselves to others. People Science secured its $8.5 million seed funding round through two rounds earlier this year, most recently in December 2022. In this episode, I spoke with Noah and Belinda about the philosophy behind people science, the nuances of alternative medicines compared to Western medicine, and their founding story, including their unique co-CEO model. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Noah and Belinda, thank you so much for joining me today on the Pulse podcast. How are you both doing? Great. Wonderful to be with you today. So we have a tradition of asking each of our guests this icebreaker question. What did you both want to be when you grew up? This was a fun one. I wanted to be a detective, like a secret agent. And I can't remember what inspired this. One thing that I really enjoyed doing as a kid was creating my own little pretend secret files out of Kodachromes that were overexposed. My dad used to take photos using Kodachromes back in the day. And I loved anything that involved searching, exploring, and kind of like detective work. I, I really enjoyed that. How about you, Noah? I still haven't grown up. I'm not sure what I'm going to be when I grow <laughs> up. <laughs> Relatable. Uh, no. Um, the only thing I can remember from super early childhood is my mom used to tell me I wanted to be the president of the United States. <laughs> so that was quite a young age. I do not want to be the president anymore. <laughs> it seems too hard of a job. <laughs> well, I, I could see you being very well suited for the role. So while people science focuses on studying alternatives to Western medicine, you both bring very robust backgrounds to the table with experience across medicine, scientific research, and clinical trials. Could you elaborate on your backgrounds as well as how you both met and what led you to start People Science? Yeah. So Belinda and I have really different personal and cultural backgrounds. So Belinda can tell her own story, but we both fell in love with science in college. And then we met in the mid 90s in the MD PhD program at UCLA. And that was the start of a, a long journey of exploration and learning and education where you know, we were trained formally as medical students and then microbiologists, immunologists, molecular biology. We both became dermatologists. Um, Belinda is also a dermatopathologist. And so we have this really geeky, interesting, overlapping background. And then about 15 years ago, we got together as science and business partners and also romantically. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's been a long, interesting journey. I've transitioned through running a translational research lab at UCLA. And then in 2014, Belinda and I started our first substantial company called Science 37. 
At Science 37, we were trying to virtualize or make decentralized the traditional randomized controlled trial for FDA drug development. And we were very successful at demonstrating you could use technology to make it possible to run clinical trials in people's homes instead of in the hospital. And what that meant was you could recruit people from all over the spectrum, a broader demographic, and really make it easier for participants to take part in research. So we built that company over about five years and really fun to build something new, a technology and a, a logistics platform to make it possible to do clinical research a different way. And in 2019, we left that company to really focus in on people science, our, our current work. My background starts with my birth in Malaysia, and I am ethnically Malaysian Chinese. My first language was a dialect of Chinese called Hokkien. And I moved to the States when I was four and grew up for the most part in the San Francisco Bay Area where my parents still retained a lot of our traditional culture from Malaysia. And I, I grew up with traditional Chinese medicine, did all the the usual stuff of a first generation individual coming to this country where there was so much opportunity, did well in math and science, ended up going to MIT as an undergrad and, and then med school, you know, where Noah and I met. And I feel like one of the big themes in what led me through this path that I've chosen, where if one looks at my CV, it seems very intentional. And I think this happens for everyone. And the 2020 rearview mirror had that very nice narrative of the history. And it was by no means that smooth and intentional feeling. And I, I bumped up against a lot of moments over the course of my training, which by the way, I had 14 years of postgraduate training where I found that I didn't quite find exactly the type of roles that I wanted to be. So whatever was out there as a physician scientist, we're trained to pursue becoming an academic clinician and researcher, going to industry. It was kind of discreet and very few options that I had seen at the time. And I landed on becoming an entrepreneur because it was kind of the space where I had the most freedom to explore and to build and be creative, which is at the core who I am. So I, I feel like it was this, I found my path, which is like, I can actually create it on my own and put together all the pieces of my path where previously I felt I was a jack of all trades and a master of none. And that felt frustrating at times. And then ultimately building companies became the place to plug in all of these interests and the, the deep training in all these disciplines. I imagine many of those sentiments will resonate with our listeners, many of whom are students trying to figure out their own path in the industry. And it's really inspiring to hear how you took one existing company that you created and turned it into something new at People Science. So as part of understanding the spark story behind People Science, I'm extremely interested in your broader philosophy behind the platform and holistic health itself, as well as what drew you towards the alternative medicine space. Yeah, thank you for this question. It comes back to my experience, and Noah will share his as well, growing up with traditional Chinese medicine, and then pursuing being trained as a Western physician and scientist where the whole framework and how you think about things is completely different. There was really no way to blend the two. And what, what was interesting and ultimately happened was I still held on to and accepted that that TCM was a way that worked for human beings and worked for me and my family. And Western science and medicine is a very powerful language that we can 
used to solve all kinds of questions and mysteries of, of nature. Where the spark came from for people science was to know in my prior experience at our last company, among the things we took away were lessons learned of how to operationalize and build a company. To me, those lessons were people, people, people. And so I'm thrilled that part of our new company name has people in it. And another part of it was that some of our core principles for why we started our last company, Science 37, still held true, which was how do we build a platform and a methodology where all the people truly are engaged and feel empowered to be involved in in research in this case and in participation. And I feel that it's been incrementally solved for and in what we did previously that did incrementally solve for that. However, we have so much more work to do. As we can see, the themes still continue to come up in clinical research and drug development as one niche of it, where there isn't enough diversity participation and it's still really hard to recruit people. You know, that that's still there. And so among the things we felt we could solve for people science was addressing that continuous challenge by putting our lens on the people. What is it that the people want? Where are the people today? And I would say the people today as as the broad audience are in this alternative medicine marketplace. And it's it's a broad marketplace where consumers are already making their own decisions of things to try. We are all doing it. I imagine among this audience, people are tinkering with supplements and things that are outside of their traditional healthcare system. So the people are there and we know how to build a technology platform that is rigorous and can support generating the evidence for what works for me. And so all of this was very exciting for us. And then I'll add one more thing, which is also another lesson learned over the course of being an entrepreneur was we made People Science a public benefit corporation. And this is something that is happening more and more among founders who want to use a mechanism that can actually be actionable to be socially conscious. And our public benefit is to serve the public with education about health and science and medicine. It brings us closer toward what we wanted to do before, which is how do we truly, truly, authentically serve the people? And if we can put in mechanisms like this and are tangible, I think we can incrementally continue to move in that direction. Rachel, I think that at our core, Belinda and I consider ourselves explorers, scientists, and tinkers. And we happen to be trained in Western medicine and we're physicians, but the notion of being a scientist and the definition of science to us is it's the way that humans organize our knowledge to uncover the hidden potential in nature. And what it doesn't say is, what is the frame of the questions and what is the frame of that knowledge? So when we started People Science, it was this convergence of our personal passions for complex alternative and complementary medicines that have been around for millennia in many cases, with our expertise in scientific discovery or clinical research. And that notion about using the lens of science to really generate evidence for medicines that are more sustainable and accessible and affordable, that's part of our long-term mission and goal is to really build the tools of science in a different way so we can understand these medicines more clearly and understand how to use them. Now I'd love to shift focus towards more specifics about what you're studying through the platform. Can you elaborate on some of your areas of focus with your research as well as why you've selected those focus areas? Yeah, there's a few different ideas that come together in what we're doing 
before we get to the what we study is the how we study it, we believe very different than how we've studied things in the past. The science is still rigorous, in some cases more rigorous and more inclusive, but our methodology of how we study things and engage with the public is very different and our technology platform supports that. But focusing in on your question of what we're studying, we define the market segments or the medicine segments, if you will, as complex, complementary, and alternative medicines. So there's two pieces of strategy here for why we're focusing in on these areas. One is we believe these medicines often are challenging to study, meaning they're often whole living organisms like an entire bacterium or an entire fungus or an entire plant sometimes mixtures of plants. That's really challenging to study in a randomized controlled trial like we do for single molecules with the FDA. So we pointed our lens of the company at this broad array of markets. I'll go through a few of them. Some of them are things like probiotics or prebiotics, things that affect the organisms that are part of us or that we live with in our guts and on our skin. And so you can imagine if the medicine itself is alive and changing all the time and lives on you or in you. That's pretty challenging to study over time, but that's one of the areas we're particularly interested in. The other are plant-based medicines. So this could include herbs, herbal formulations, as well as things like cannabis. Cannabis has been a medicine for humans and probably other species for thousands of years. And it's a very, very complex plant, has hundreds of active molecules in it. We're just starting to scratch the surface, how we understand that and how you can use it as a medicine, both for illness and for wellness. Our market segments, importantly, go into the field of psychedelics, both natural and synthetic psychedelics. And the reason there is twofold. One is the natural psychedelics are complex, sometimes whole plants, um, whole fungus. Um, and understanding how those medicines affect us for wellness and for illness, um, that's important to us. The other thing about the field of psychedelics is that the study of the process itself is very complex. It involves the personalization of your experience as a human, so your traumas, your cultural background. These are things that typically don't affect blood pressure medicines. But when it comes to mental health and spiritual wellness, psychedelics in particular demand a form of science that's going to have to be more complex and more inclusive to understand how they work for humans across the globe. So I think these broad categories of food as medicine, whole plants and herbs, complex plants like cannabis, psychedelics, and probiotics, these are the market areas we're focused in. And Aside from our passion for the science of them, the markets therein are blossoming or blooming really quickly all by themselves. So you're probably aware that people are choosing these things as medicines for wellness and betterment all over the globe, and it's growing really quickly. What process do you go through to determine which studies you'll launch and in what cadence? And relatedly, how do you determine who you'll partner with to launch these studies? I would say that we haven't spend any money or energy on outbound marketing. So all of our current clients and partners have reached out to us based on their knowledge of what we're doing. So I would say the primary ingredient for a good client relationship is their mission aligned with us. That often means doing things a little differently, pursuing the science in quite a different way. And so combination of mission aligned, good people, fun people, and interesting projects are what we're looking for. Of course, most of our clients need to have funding to do the research. Some of them, we partner with them to raise money philanthropically to do the research. But I think the core ingredients of people pursuing complex scientific questions in these markets that we're looking for 
And for sure, at this stage of career and company, good people, good people, good people, that's part of the equation. <laughs> it's really important to us. And I'll add to, as any startup founders would know, we have to strike the balance at this stage between finding those best early partners who are going to help us figure it out when we're early on and be aligned, as Noah's saying, and build toward that sustainable business model. I think among the challenges we have as visionary founder types is like you get so excited about all the ideas and there's so many out there. And we have to be really diligent about how we expend our resources and our own personal time even to go after those things. And and so I think the hard work is actually managing basically all inbounds at this stage of our company. So outbounds are TBD coming up. However, it takes a lot of time to, to talk to people who are interested in what we're doing. To me, the ideal client today is one that has the budget to do a research study, has some know-how about the clinical research studies, and really ideally wants to license our platform because it, it's so unique in terms of how it engages participation and also has the back-end rigor of the quality that everyone is looking for when you're edging into what's the clinical evidence look like. With respect to clinical evidence generation, we as consumers hear all over the news daily about the quote-unquote health and wellness industry and how it's being disrupted by so many new products and technologies. Yet many times the number of products on the market can be so overwhelming and the claims made about products are very unclear, especially given that a lot of companies sponsoring these studies are likely not credible. So what are, in your eyes, some of the biggest challenges to reforming the health and wellness industry? And how is people science helping to address these challenges? A great question. I think it goes back to our fundamental approach to our platform and to the science itself. So let me take a step back and get a little philosophical for a second. If you think about data, data is just numbers and ideas that are uncontextualized. If you contextualize data to an individual person and their experience, so for you, Rachel, it's if you're having problems sleeping, which medicines will affect you and improve your sleep? That data contextualized to who you are becomes knowledge. That knowledge, if we collect it from 200 people like you, Rachel, that becomes knowledge at scale, which can be distributed to society. And it becomes wisdom as you learn how to use a medicine like that. The notion of data and contextualized to your person, you can think of it as your voice. So using your voice as a form of influence, there's two different ways you can do it. You can tell your story to a friend. So this is classic marketing, like I use this, it worked, and I'm Rachel, an influencer. So that's great. That is one way to influence people buying a product. The second is data at scale. So your voice in the context of 200 other voices like you becomes a choir. That song can be told through a different megaphone, if you will. That's what science does is it aggregates 200 people like you to bring that data into the story of does this medicine work for people like Rachel? And that notion around the individual story or the emotionality of how this helped me personally combined with wow, this scientifically really works for people like Rachel. That form of combination, you can call it marketing or you can call it science. To us, it's a blur. And it's really important in this space because these medicines are so complex. Doing a randomized controlled trial defies the complexity of humans and these medicines. And so our idea is 
if you can capture the data and knowledge from individual people, aggregate it, and then bring that back to society, that really will underscore the believability and the credibility of these medicines in a form that's kind of adjacent to the current FDA process, but we believe will really transform this industry of wellness and supplements and things like that. You mentioned food as medicine as one of the areas you're studying, which is an area that I'm particularly passionate about and have spent quite a bit of time studying through both investing and personal research. And I think one of the hardest aspects is convincing health plans why they should invest in food as medicine solutions when they can't directly point to patient outcomes. So could you maybe speak to an example of how your platform could help make this a reality and actually help overcome the challenge of a lack of clinical endpoints in the food as medicine space? The way you ask that question is quite interesting because convincing the FDA for drug approval is one whole set of science. However, convincing payers or people that care about the overall long-term health of individuals or members, that's a very different project for scientists to really generate the evidence. I don't get too cynical thinking everything's about money. Sometimes it is. So you can ask a question, if we could prevent diabetes with a diet or food, or if we could prevent obesity or reverse obesity with food, how much money and how much wellness and long-term longevity would that generate? How much money would it save? The way that you can use our platform to study these things is in a much broader type of study, so a lot more people at once and for a longer period of time, where the outcomes can be things like weight or BMI, for example. They can be development of diabetes. Ultimately, my belief is payers care both about the wellness of their members and the bottom line. And so if you can generate evidence that says this approach with food, which is much more accessible and inexpensive than all these expensive pills, if that diet or that food can prevent diabetes, reduce obesity, things like that, ultimately that can save billions and billions of dollars. So I think what our platform allows you to do is study real people in their real homes over a long period of time without disrupting their lives. And it doesn't compromise on the science. So it just is a scalable platform that can really ask these hard questions around what does a dietary change in someone's real complicated life look like? With respect to your business model and how you actually operationalize these studies, can you speak a bit about both the B2B clinical platform side as well as the B2C user-facing side and your Chloe app? Our goal is ultimately to be primarily an enterprise platform solution for research, specifically clinical research that I will define as broadly, are you studying human beings? And is the question you're asking related to some outcome that a human being would report? So that that is our target. And in our B2B service right now, we have two different types of customers. One is looking for the full service where they don't really understand how to design a study, go through the regulatory process if there's something needed, ethics boards, conduct the study. And then there are those who know how to do all of that and really need a robust tool that's affordable and really engaging for participation. And we have clients right now in both of those realms. And I'll say what we're learning in how we're conducting our business today is a lot of what our future enterprise clients will be wanting and they will be folks who are seeking some kind of pathway toward more regulatory rigor, you know, so perhaps 
looking for signals that will then inform a later stage study for an FDA, NDA, new drug approval process. Other clients will be academic researchers who are trying to look for something that is all-in-one, really engaging for participation, uses all the modern tools for these ecologically relevant inputs. As Noah was alluding to, we can actually get data from people in their everyday lives, which is very different than what is currently available. And that's compelling for looking for solutions around food as medicine, et cetera. And then the organizations where I'm particularly excited about this growing marketplace in the health and wellness industry, where you have these CPG brands, they're actually quite rigorous in terms of their product research and development. However, they're looking for that edge to how to market themselves and differentiate. And so they want to be science-backed. What, what does that mean? And we know some companies that have hired their own clinical operations teams, they understand clinical research, and all they're looking for is a really great tool. And those are, to me, a very exciting client base. In this future of building a, a scalable platform, it's essentially democratizing clinical research. You know, it doesn't have to be a scary thing where you've never done it before and you have no idea where to start. It's going to be a solution that a lot of the, the barrier of entry will be much lower. On the consumer side, what is the primary demographic or customer segments that you're targeting and how are you engaging them with the Chloe app? If you think about all the people who are consumers buying products and exploring wellness solutions across the markets that Noah described, you know, food as medicine, microbiome interventions, psychedelics, cannabinoids, that broad category. To us, it's really a broad base of very similar people who are empowered, have some form of resources to go and purchase these products and try it themselves. And to us, those are the consumers who will be coming to our platform and wanting to find a tool that it's not a tracker. So Chloe is not a tracker. Like there are many apps out there for consumers. It measures and it gives you the results. And that's really where I feel there's a gap in what is enabling consumers to know exactly what to do. So like, I'm trying something, this is happening. Like, what does it mean? That's the consumer community that we're targeting with fully. And one thing I'll add too, these will be people who are highly engaged to participate in research studies by researchers who are using our platform. There are ways within Chloe where it becomes kind of like this marketplace of really engaged people who want to participate and really believe in this model contributing to, to science. I would imagine that the data collected from this clinical research is invaluable to many companies that are looking to understand everything from nutraceuticals and supplements to functional medicines. Does the data collected from your clinical research get monetized or perhaps sold to other parties beyond those paying for the studies themselves? Yeah, currently no. So Chloe is free to consumers and the data or knowledge generated by individual consumers is, you can think of it Similarly to electricity, it's contributed like a solar panel would contribute back to the grid. So it fuels both your own understanding of your own wellness and it can contribute back to the knowledge and societal benefit that people science seeks to deliver on. In general, the way that our company works or how we make money are through sponsored studies. And so the sponsors hire us to test medicines or license Chloe the platform. To drill in a little bit more on Chloe's purpose, Chloe, our platform, stands for Consumer Health Learning and Organizing Ecosystem, and it is truly built around the journey of the individual person. So there's two forms of evidence generation. One is experimental, 
where we're actually provoking an experiment. So that would be a sponsored study. And the other is what we call real world evidence. So additionally, real world evidence, most scientists or most clinicians think about it as a lens of what happened in a doctor's record. So the EMR and look back retrospectively. However, a doctor's record does not capture the lived life at home of an individual person. And so Chloe is built to capture what really happens to people at home intervening in their own health. And that real world evidence, there's no other platform like that that is a scientific tool built for capturing evidence in people's lived lives. So we call it real world evidence, but it's captured through very different lens than a doctor's lens. So interesting. What are some of your other plans for expanding the business over the coming year, expanding your platform as a software as a service product and giving more access to academic and clinical institutions to launch trials of their own? That is our vision with our business model is to be that enterprise platform solution for research. We currently do have some academic researchers for our clients using it in that SAF model sort of way with our MVP, which has been terrific. And then also other CPG clients who are looking at it as a solution. And what's been great in this initial stage is we've actually identified some pretty important key features to build into the back end for the, the UI UX as a the SaaS model. And our next major development push starting in the next few weeks is actually to build out that back end even more. So we're very excited about it. We, all the while we're developing this, continue to conduct studies ourselves. Um, as Noah was describing these full service studies where it's identifying some critical workflow solutions that are needed that makes it that much easier for the clinical operations teams, the reporting, you know, all of these aspects that make it a really easy tool. And all the while, we also have to keep in mind what's the participant experience. We spend a lot of time keeping an eye on what's happening in that realm with our users. And our team includes folks who are from public health and community participatory research, and they will identify and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with some of these users. And we're learning really, really important learnings from, from this in terms of what to build into Chloe. To answer it more philosophically as well, we think about Chloe and what we're building as infrastructure. Think of it like railroad tracks. And so our hope is that we'll build a, a really global, um, easy to use set of railroad tracks and other scientists or other communities will be able to put their own railroad cars on the tracks, fill it up with different types of questions, fill the car up with different types of materials. Currently, we also offer to put the train on the track ourselves as well. So if you don't have your own trains, you don't know how to run studies we will do that for you. But our, our long-term goal is really for this to be an easy to use ecosystem or infrastructure that attaches people who are interested in contributing to science, the people or consumers, to scientists who are interested in asking questions. And those scientists might be engaged with different communities asking on behalf of the public or manufacturers of medicines. So it's really an infrastructure or utility that can be used by thousands of scientists around the globe and empowers millions of people using Chloe as a mobile app. Do you foresee any barriers to expanding the platform at this time or over the next couple of years? You could imagine as repeat crazy entrepreneurs, we see barriers not as barriers, but as opportunities and ch challenges to overcome. Yeah, really, 
we seem to be on track. We're having a lot of fun. The market seems to be alive and well. There's tons of inbound interest. And we've scaled a company and a technology platform before. So it doesn't seem insurmountable. Time and capital, of course, are critical ingredients to scaling a company and a platform like this. But overall, we see the market and interest is there. Our capabilities to deliver on this vision are there. So I don't know, Belinda, do you see any? The main barrier, like in many cases where you're trying to develop a new market, is the new market understanding the value. And if our inbounds has any prediction for what the future we hold, I will say we're, we are on the right track. And a lot of the hard work that we're doing right now is educating the market. And having a lot of these interactions in sales, uh, it gives us feedback on how people are thinking about things and where we need to work to educate, where we need to build our tool out. And I think that's a, a barrier one might expect and we're, we're pushing through it. And certainly, no and I are not shy when it comes to these challenges. Absolutely. And I think it's such an interesting time in the market, whether it's due to generational shifts or post-pandemic prioritization of holistic well-being. I think you're coming into the market at the perfect time. Noah, you mentioned capital, and I wanted to shift focus towards your fundraising. So first of all, congratulations on the 5.3 million C2 fundraise that you guys did earlier this year, which was led by Acre Venture Partners. And as an aside, that is the fund where I interned this summer. So it's very near and dear to my heart. What do you think were some of the key factors about your platform or business model, since this is a business-specific podcast? that resonated with and ultimately led to success with your investors? Yeah, so our investor base now, I think we have eight institutional investors involved that range all the way from consumer goods to psychedelics investors to food as medicine investors to traditional health tech. And those are the different quadrants of where we operate and how we think. The recent round really accelerated our interest in and understanding of food as medicine as a market. So Acre Ventures, for example, is invested in companies that grow food differently or think about how we eat things differently and what the ingredients are. And when we sat down with them, we learned about their needs, which are their investing companies they think can change the world of food and agriculture. And they have no great way to test those ideas scientifically. And so they defined the market need in their own space. And we learned about food as medicine as part of that interaction. So I think all of the domains I just spoke about, they have this market need for less expensive, rigorous, fast evidence generation or science. And I think that investors, they, by definition, they're looking for a return on their own investment, which is, you know, for-profit venture capital. And they're also mission aligned with us. And I can't underscore that enough. All of our investors, they get behind us and they're proud to say, we're invested in people science, generating evidence for the public and for the common good. And that combination of people who want a great investment and want to do something great for the world, whether it's climate or food or agriculture or psychedelics, that is a really wonderful combination in our investor base. And, and I couldn't be happier with our current trajectory. I'll add to it helps that we're repeat founders. This is an first radio, as they say, and looking at the marketplace out there and, and certainly our conversations we had through the raise process, that was something that came up quite a bit and it gave us an edge in terms of how we could speak to what we're doing 
because we've done stuff in this ecosystem before and we're edging into this other space that's a, a follow-on. I think that helps a lot. And certainly there's the challenges of our business model as two co-leaders. I really would love to highlight the fact that you are not only co-founders, but also co-CEOs. And it's not often that we see co-CEOs in the world of startups, let alone from a married couple. And so it would be really interesting to hear more about your co-leadership model at the company. Yeah, this was a significant decision now and I made early on. In our prior company, it was more traditional. Um, Noah was the CEO. And the reason for doing this, I feel like there's still a lot more work we can all do to model how partnerships and co-leadership can actually work very well. What's interesting to me is that for those of us who have partnerships in the home, it is that we are living that model and have to work through it to make it work out for us. And the same principles actually that govern our co-CEO in the home also governs building a company. We often try to separate our work and our home. And while yes, that can sometimes be necessary so that you can actually carve out the true personal time, I feel like the values don't change and the values are interchangeable between those spheres of our life. And so in our traditional model previously versus now, we've applied a lot of our learnings from our last company. It's being very clear about decision-making when any major decision needs to be made and we anticipate that's the case. Everything stops and we say, okay, Noah, who's the decision-maker here? Let's make that decision. And then we move forward and we go on, have our conversation, give the feedback and the decision-maker makes the decision and we both look in the direction of where the decision date and we move forward. And that's been so important in how we're doing things. Another one is also renegotiating agreements. This is a big one where trust is such a critical part of the people, people, people part. You know, how do you work together, especially as a startup where there are so many unknowns and people need to have the flexibility and the adaptability? You need to trust one another and you need to trust who's making the decision. And among the things that gets slowly kind of chipped away at in terms of compromising trust is when agreements are not followed up on. And it's simple things like, oh, I'll send you that by Friday and it's Wednesday the next week and there's no word of where it is. And the receiver is like, wait, what happened there? I was expecting that. So it's little things like that. And then it's the bigger things too. I thought we had agreed on this and now you're doing this, what's happening? So renegotiating agreements, which is to say that things happen and things change and that's okay. And so if we can talk about it and renegotiate it, it's about communication. And then the last one is um, having hard conversations as often as needed and as soon as possible. And this applies to us in all aspects of our life. The more you avoid it, the more the narratives spin out of your head and creates a really uncomfortable relationship. As co-founders, I would say we apply these to our home and our life. And I really look forward to continuing to have the courage together with Noah to model that we can get this done. I know a lot of people out there in the business world and investors shy away from partnerships like ours because it has the expected baggage that one might anticipate. And it's important to show that you know we can model leadership holistically. There's something special about the 
co-leadership model that defies some of the behaviors that come with a traditional model. So for example, in academic situations, sometimes there's a rotating chair of a department. So you're a chair for two years, and then you're going to be back in a faculty role. When you know you're going to be in an opposite role or in a consulting role to a different CEO in this case, it makes you model the behavior of how you would want to be treated both reporting up and reporting down. And so that notion around the respect for the decision-making process and understanding how that makes it so easy to co-lead, there's something really cool about it. And it, it feels very different than our last company. And I think it's hard to model at times, but the rewards of it are far outside the gravity of what you need to do. I love that you're challenging industry norms, not just with respect to what you're studying, but how you're running the organization. I'm sure you've inspired many of our listeners today with your entrepreneurial journey. Do you have any advice for our listeners from your learnings as an entrepreneur, or I should say a two-time set of entrepreneurs and as innovators in the healthcare industry? Getting to know myself and listening more to myself and my heart and having the courage to do that, I feel like that's been the most challenging. It really goes a long way toward contributing to how you show up and the types of people who you magnetize to and magnetize to yourself. And as we described before, you know, people, people, people was such a huge lesson for us. And even right now, building our initial team, which we're proud to say many of them we've worked with in the past, built on trust and really finding people who, who resonate with you. Another thing that Noah and I do toward this tendency to, to have more courage to show up is sharing our personal stories more with our business world and even our team. I think many people feel like that's super private and it's not the stuff that's really private. It's the stuff like, oh, this happened to us this weekend. And so that's why this morning's meeting had to be pushed later. Stuff that happens in everyone's life. I think it's okay to, to share it. Noah and I sent out an update to our investors recently that shared some really personal stuff that happened to us this summer. And I think some people had responded thanking us for having the courage to say that. So that's my advice is having the courage to listen to yourself, even though it feels like the market isn't really doing that type of thing. Yeah, I always say my own journey is an N of one. So I've only been through this life once as far as I can tell in my consciousness today. And what I'm going to say next is, I don't know if it's inherent to someone's core fabric or core being, but as a professed delusional optimist and someone who lives towards what's possible, I feel like in general, you don't need to say that to entrepreneurs in general. However, a core belief that I have is painting out the future of what's possible and not focusing on the past or the status quo or even the competition. I can't overemphasize how important that is for me. So that's, that's what I mean by my experience has been, I live for that future vision. And in combination with Belinda, we live for the FIO culture, which is we see where we're going and then we FIO, figure it out. How do we get from here to there? And if you lose sight of you know that vision or the North Star, take some time to do the work to learn about yourself and get back to that vision. Being a founder, CEO, can be a lonely job sometimes. Being a co-CEO is much less lonely. Regarding being an innovator in the healthcare industry, listening to our hearts and showing up as we are authentically is so critical. It's what healthcare 
continues to need. You know, it's, it's a big business engine that's taking care of so many people and it's so complex and it needs to be operationally minded. And at the same time, we have to continue to ask ourselves, where are the human beings in all of this? And if we start with ourselves and ask ourselves, how can I be more authentically human? That goes a long way in terms of how we're impacting what we're doing. This is definitely the most inspired I've felt in quite a while. And I can't thank you both enough for joining me on the Pulse podcast today. Belinda, Noah, I really appreciate your time. And I can't wait to see all that people science goes on to achieve for this industry. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Fun conversation. Thank you.